Hey there, true listeners. This is Kyle from the Longbox Cast, and you're listening to another great 4Ride Radio podcast. For more great shows, check out 4RideRadio.com. And while you're at it, check out our Facebook page at facebook.com slash longboxcast. Hello, this is Steve. And this is Eric. And you're listening to the Crichton Cast. I'm declaring a state of emergency. All personnel restricted to base. Everything seen and heard in that room is top secret. Yes, sir. He didn't tell you what's inside the sphere, did he? You didn't tell him, did you? You didn't tell him what's inside the sphere. And how would you know that, Beth? I am not a warrior. Very soon, you will be. We're going to the jungle. Amy wants green drop drink. No. Amy wants green drop drink. All right, all right. Where they were married. God creates dinosaurs. God destroys dinosaurs. God creates man. Man destroys God. Man creates dinosaurs. Dinosaurs eat man. Woman inherits the earth. Eric, are you ready to perform some brain surgery with me? Absolutely. Wonderful. Let's get, into Let's it. get right into this. Let's <laughs> delve deep and drill through that skull and everything else. Let's talk today about uh, The Terminal Man. The Terminal Man. Yes, yes. indeed. So this was written in 1972. Mm-hmm. Uh, the movie itself came out in 1974. And this was a book that I found out in going through my Crichton collection. First off, I have three different copies of Jurassic Park because um, <laughs> I have like a hardcover that was like a special edition and two others. I don't own the Terminal Man at all. So I actually had to get on Amazon and, you know, uh, buy the book so I could read it on my Kindle. So this was a book that I have never read, never watched the movie. This was all bre- fresh and brand new to me. I, how about you, Eric? Uh, yeah, me as well. I actually, I thought that I had read this book at some point in the past, um, but it may have been one that I skipped over. Um, and I'm not sure if it, you know, you know, thinking back, I can't recall if it was because I, I didn't get into it right away or if it was just one that I just never got my hands on. Because when I discovered uh, Crichton was, you know, after Jurassic Park came out, the the movie, I saw the movie first and then... <clears throat> I was like, "Ooh, this is based on a book. I'll check that out." And then I, you know, that's where my love affair with uh, Crichton's novels really began. And so I went back and I read, you know, pretty much everything he had written at that point. Right. Um, but I think this one may have been one of the ones that either just maybe it was too old, and you know, my my teenage brain at the time said, "Oh, no, that 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 book's too old. I can't read a book that that that's that old," you know, um, or for whatever reason, I don't recall reading it. So this essentially was a first time for me, and definitely first time watching the movie. Okay. All right, wonderful. I also changed this up a bit since it was a first all around and uh, watched the movie first just to, just to go into it with a fresh perspective completely. And I will tell you, I'll probably during this episode be intermixing the book and the movie because I did that. And I kind of wonder if I didn't ruin anything for myself because I was so lost in this movie when I first started it. <laughs> um <coughs> The first uh, 20, I actually rewatched it again last night. Um, in the first 20 minutes of the movie, I think we're done well because they were chopping between different things happening. You know, the main character, Benson, arriving at the hospital, the uh, conference going on with all the nurses. 
was so it was really kind of well done, but I had no clue who anybody was in this thing. So to tell everybody, this book and movie is about this character, Benson, who is a computer genius and way into artificial intelligence back in the early 70s, which, I mean, is huge if you think about what computers really were in the 70s. Mm-hmm. But he has a had got into a car accident and he now has seizures and he has his blackout moments where he's becoming violent. And so this is going to be the first surgery performed on a human at this hospital where they're going to implant probes to do electrical shocks. So whenever he's going to have a seizure, they can do a shock to him that will stop the seizure or get him into thinking uh, happy thoughts type of thing. Uh, At one point in the movie, for sure, I think in the book, too, they talk about how it might be kind of like brain control, you know, that kind of thing. Yeah, they they allude to it being a type of mind control, but not Mm -hmm. in the not in the like Professor X making you do things type of mind control more in the mind control in the same way that a pacemaker is heart control you know if you think about it in that sense it's just helping the brain do what it's supposed to be doing anyway it's not uh, causing it to do anything that it wouldn't normally you know and, and i think most of the time when you think of mind control in that sense that's what you're thinking of you're thinking of you know like the government making you do things that you you don't want to do um <laughs> you know you're you're thinking of that type of of thing that's that's the vision that comes to mind and that's one of the things the doctors are fighting in in this book and movie is the stigma of you know how are we going to spin this so that people don't think that it's that kind of mind control when it it really isn't it's really just a matter of it's it's steering the brain back on course you know the brain's going crazy over here it's having a seizure it's in this case causing a violent outburst um how can we stop that how can we steer the brain back into to normal course and um uh, that part of it, I don't have a problem with the, the theory of this at all. And in fact, um, you know, nowadays they, they call it uh, neurostimulation, I believe. And it's essentially something that uh, that kind of is done. Not exactly mm-hmm. in the sense that as it was written here, but, you know, very, very similarly. Um, this type of thing is, is, I wouldn't say commonplace, but it is uh, done <laughs> in this day right. and age. Um, but in this time frame, yeah, there, there definitely still was that stigma of... Um, it being a, a bad mind control type of thing. Right. There was an- he really brings it up in the movie, too. And I wish, you know, obviously this is before my time, but I wish I really, really knew what it was like in the early 70s when it came to computers. Like, I, um, my dad was into computers from the very beginning uh, in the late 70s and the early 80s. And I have seen the receipts and like heard stories about like when he first ordered uh, computer parts to build his own computer and the thousand dollars it cost. You know, my yeah. dad was didn't spend his money on cars. He spent it on these computer parts back mm-hmm. then. And it's just so it's fascinating to me that he can be thinking this much, especially talking about the artificial intelligence the uh, robotics and stuff like that that gets mentioned both in the book and the movies where Benson's character works at. Uh, it, it, it just blows me away. And now today when you think about it, we do have research and we're implanting things into people's eyes so they can see again. And uh, technically it is like a miniature computer, a hearing aid, you know, something so simple like that. And uh, it's just fascinating to Michael Crichton's credit, how much he thought about all of that stuff. And I'll tell you, one of my favorite characters, and I'm sorry, I'm jumping all over the place here (laughs) in the book are the wizards, the two computer nerds, geeks, his description of these two computer guys in the book, uh, is spot on for what you would imagine a Google employee being today. (laughs) 
<laughs> their their dress, their attitude towards these doctors, who these doctors are so used to be calling, you know, doctor so-and-so, and they just call them by their first name, and they're sitting there at this computer terminal staring at data and numbers, and they understand what's coming across. In fact, there's one scene in the book where they're reading these printouts of every single time uh, all his EEG uh, readings, and every single time that he gets a stimulation or when he's sleeping, and it makes sense to them, but the doctor that walks in, Ross, she has no clue what's happening. She needs to see a chart. She needs to see a picture of it. Uh, And so you're seeing the different type of mindsets when it comes to computers. But his description of them, I thought, hey, that's a Google employee today. Yeah. uh, I think it was Gerhard and Richards, I believe, um, Mm -hmm. who were – they had Gerhard in the movie, but not the same Gerhard at all. No, Um, He was just – the guy who was running the computer. He, he really, um, he didn't have the personality that they had in the book at all. Um, there was a, quite a few differences. See, um, like you, I watched the movie and then read the book, except, I, well, actually, I read the book, <clears throat> read it, read it uh, on my tablet, and then I watched the movie. And then immediately mm-hmm. I listened to the book on audio format. Okay. And so that made for an interesting, I, I did that in the same day that I watched the movie. So I was really able to find a lot more of the the specific pinpoint differences that uh, they made changes in the movie from the source material that I thought were, uh, in some cases, interesting in a good way, and in some cases, uh, not so much. There were a couple of things in the book they really focused throughout the entire book on one of uh, you know one of the problems with this whole thing was not just the the stigma of the surgery and everything like that but the fact that they were choosing this particular person you know the driving force in the book is Dr. Ross not mm-hmm. wanting Benson to get the surgery because she thinks that he is uh, psychotic completely separate from the brain injury that that the surgery is supposed to actually fix and they and, he, and she thinks that they're essentially uh, best case scenario they're wasting their time implanting this in somebody who's psychotic anyway and worst case scenario they're going to make it even worse um, in the movie they they almost downplay that quite a bit yeah she's still there and yeah she still has the same concerns and yeah that's a, a, you know ultimately what happens but they really downplay his psychosis, which specifically mm-hmm. is that he believes that computers and machines are trying to take over. He, right. He's you know, got this whole Skynet thing going on, um, <laughs> and they they really show it a lot differently in the book than they do in the movie, I feel. There's one particular moment which I thought was odd because in the, I felt they weren't consistent—I felt he wasn't as consistent in the book, and they tried to do it in the movie, and then they went away from it later on, which is weird, and that's when he first gets to the hospital— you notice in the book, he's very interested in the mechanics of the bed. You know, right. he's, he's like, oh, mm-hmm. check this. He's like, oh, I know what kind of motor is running this. And he plays with it. And he's very interested in it. And he suggests an improvement they can make to it yes. in the book. Yes. In the movie, he's like, yeah, this has got to go. And this TV, too. This has got to go. I can't have this in here. Like, mm-hmm. he's, he's scared. He doesn't want any machinery in the room. He's right. not interested in it. He's scared of it. Um, and I thought that was interesting that the movie version of that actually fits the rest of the book better <laughs> than the book, the book version, version of it, yes. <laughs> but then later on in the movie, they kind of they get away from that. They don't really show that again. And so I thought that was very – I thought that was weird how they had mm-hmm. that, that kind of flip-flop there. Um, there, there was a My... lot more focus in the book on his specific uh, issues with, with technology. And in the movie, I felt they kind of glossed over that. 
But that one scene, it's like, okay, did that get slipped in there? Did that like miss an edit somewhere? What what happened there? Right, because nowhere else do they really pinpoint, and that's what I. That's what's so different between these two is in the book you really know where he's coming from and how much he has this disdain for technology. I mean technology is the bad guy in this book uh, to him. And in the movie, I never understood why it was he was doing this. In the book, you very much see why he's doing it, especially towards the end. He's doing everything on purpose. He is a very smart man. He methodically planned this all out because his end goal was to get rid of that computer that was in the basement of the hospital because that was the computer that caused Watershed Week, according to the book. Yeah, that was the okay. in the book they they mentioned this uh, watershed week as the week in which the total computing power of computers in the world exceeded the total computing power of human brains in the world. Um, mm-hmm. I don't know if that's quite honestly it's, really a thing. <laughs> it's not. It's not a thing. I actually did a bunch of research on it, and Watershed Week is not a thing. Um, there is a Watershed Music Festival out there, but there is no <laughs> Watershed uh, Week. And the reason being that there's no Watershed Week is the computing power, there's no way for you to really measure the computing power of the brain, because you can't access all the information in the brain the way it's stored in your subconscious in different ways. So mm-hmm. they don't really say. Now, as far as uh, data, you know, like server, like storage power, Yes, but it wasn't even until the mid-90s, 96, 97, when Deep Blue, the chess computer, actually beat a human. That was such a huge thing uh, as far as computers winning out over humans and everything like that. But that was, you know, into the 90s by that time when IBM's Deep Blue actually did that. Yeah. But Watershed Week was not a thing, but that was his that was his moment. And uh, I love when he is at the, um, uh, what is the name of his company, Automation or whatever it was that he worked at? Um, I love when he's, yeah, when and he's, I, for, I forget the name of the company, but yeah, he essentially worked for a computer and robotics company that mm-hmm. had uh, contracts with the DOD. They were making um, artificial intelligence. They were working specifically, you know, they had one thing that they were working on that was a, a ping pong playing machine. Which, for the DOD. <laughs> yeah, which, you know, on the surface of it, it's like, why does the DOD need, you know, why does the Department of Defense need a ping pong playing robot? But then you think about it, and they explain in the book, it's like, well, think about what other applications, a computer that can see an object moving in three-dimensional space and specifically know where to hit it and how to hit it in such a way that it goes back towards its source in a specific mm-hmm. manner according to specific rules. Um, yeah, you, you scale that up and, okay, now now we're talking about something that has real uh, defensive applications here. Right. And the fascinating part of that, and this is all happening towards the end of the book when Benson has now escaped from the hospital, he's had the surgery done and the doctors involved in it are all going off their own way uh, you know one to his house one to his place of work one to the strip club that he always goes to but that's when I really found out a lot about him because I thought Benson is this guy who sees so much more than any normal person he has high security clearance he sees all these robotics and what the government's doing with it he you know a normal person doesn't see a computer that often in the 70s but he's seeing all of this mm-hmm. and then he had that news article about that one computer that that was watershed week and that's the computer and that all of a sudden became the you know his opposite the bad guy that's what he had to take down and I feel like from then on is when he started planning all of this stuff out uh, to try and take down the big bad guy, the computer. Yeah, it was, it was almost, um, I, I thought of it as he was planning an assassination. He wanted to, yeah. he was going to assassinate this computer. But in order to do so, 
but I don't think he just wanted to physically destroy it. He wanted to reprogram it. He wanted to to essentially uh, destroy it internally so that it couldn't be repaired easily. Hence right. the changing of the computer code, which I felt was it, – it almost seemed like it was an afterthought in the book. And it wasn't in even mentioned in the movie at all. They didn't even nope. – I mean the movie, they changed the ending so drastically that it, it almost doesn't even make sense the way they changed it. I mean they, they – Totally, just like halfway through the movie, decided, ah, we're just going to end this like a '70s action flick, you know. Right. The, the rest of this stuff, the rest of this story, doesn't even matter. But yeah, he the, had everything the, planned out. Right. And you're right. And I love. I didn't think about that, but this was an assassination attempt for him. Um, so that's that, huh, what a great way. I'm going to totally remember that, Eric. But yeah, this was an assassination attempt. This what he was playing out. And I love it because I totally got in his character. I believe in the book, the main characters were definitely him, and then Doctor Ross, who mm-hmm. actually was his psychiatrist. You know, he, they, they had such a relationship because she's the one that's trying to figure out mentally, and she is against the surgery the whole time because it's not really going to fix his psychosis, which. She she knows is this whole computers thing mm-hmm. and um they have such a great relationship and you see her story arc in the book how she's also a woman in this doctor's field and her father was a surgeon and all this stuff that she's trying to prove herself and it really comes to fruition at the end when she and Benson are pretty much having a showdown when she's thinking to herself yeah I'll be able to save him and we're gonna uh, I'm gonna be awarded everybody's gonna shake my hand like she she really thinks like this is what's gonna happen and I'm gonna be the hero and I'm gonna prove myself as a doctor so throughout the whole course of the book there's this underlying thing where she's constantly trying to prove herself even to her father who's not in the book but for herself she's trying to prove because she even goes and sits down on a psychiatrist's couch a couple of times in the book yeah yeah there's uh, definitely some specific need there for her to prove herself and a lot of it is because she is a woman in this field that's you know dominated by men especially in this time I mean it's still to this day unfortunately somewhat like that but in the 70s definitely you know there's even one scene where a nurse doesn't believe she's a doctor she walks up there and she's like oh what do you need nurse I'm I'm not a nurse I'm a doctor oh okay so you must be looking for this kid because only if you're a female doctor you have to be a pediatrician that's the only thing you can be and she's Mm -hmm. like no I'm a psychiatrist and she's like the, the nurse is like flabbergasted by this um and so it's it's that type of mentality that she's fighting against that she wants people to to respect her as a doctor um and you know forget about the fact that she also happens to be a woman right yep and so that's uh, it's just a fascinating thing compared to the movie because i even in the book though i was more attached to benson and his plight because nobody really understood him and i didn't think of this until towards the end of the book but nobody understood him because he sees everything in the computers and what's happening in the background because he's got such high clearance and nobody really could understand what was going on in his mind and i think none of the even when other characters get, were a character to yeah yeah i i i, I get you. um and even when you know he tried to let people in a little bit to how his mind was working. People wrote it off as just, oh, that's just his his weird thing about the computers. You know, when he would mm-hmm. talk about, oh, I can't remember it. He didn't just say, I can't remember it. He said, oh, those memory tapes have been erased. You know, he was talking about his own brain as if it was a computer and, you know, in these physical, mechanical terms. And people were just kind of writing it off as, yeah, okay, whatever. Um, when that was really... You know, people should have been paying more attention to that. And I think Dr. Ross was the only one who was paying attention to that. And she's like, see, see, do you see what I've been telling you? <laughs> mm-hmm. 
and she was trying to get proven right. I do love that in the book when he does say that, see, they've been erased, and he opens his mouth and makes a static sound, <laughs> as yes. if it was a data tape that was just, just static. And he they did, really is convinced, yeah. They did use that in the movie, but it seemed so out of place because it was, again, near the end where they had changed so much, so it was kind of like, oh, okay, yeah, that was in the book, but not like this. Mm-hmm. Not like this. Like at that time, he's in the middle of a psychotic break when they do right. it in the movie. It's not just a normal time in the book. It's just normal conversation when he does that. Mm-hmm. In the book or in the movie, he's in the middle of a break. So you just you, you write it off as being, OK, well, it's part of, you know, he's 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 going crazy right now. So that's why. So, again, it's one of those things that even though they kept it, they put it in the wrong spot to make it as effective. Exactly. And then this book itself, I uh, I the first one, you know, with that was turned into a movie was Andromeda Strain, and you've got your character is this bad guy, which is really just this disease, and so, and it's really all about this place where they're studying it. And the uh, second one, you know, and a man of need, you're so into this main doctor character. In this book, I feel like there is so much given to each individual character. No one person really, really stood out to me. I wonder what he was trying to get across in this book. This almost feels like this is the beginning of what Jurassic Park became, which was don't fuck with science because it's going to kick you back type of thing. (laughs) Yeah, you almost uh, wonder, you know, in the book and in the movie, essentially they turn Benson into the the bad guy. You know, he is both, you know, he he is kind of both the antagonist and the protagonist in, in both because he kind of turns halfway through. But I don't really think that that's how Crichton envisioned it originally. I really think it was more of a, um, you know, more of a, a warning as far as the let's let's be careful with these computers because mm-hmm. they could, you know, maybe there is a little bit of uh, possibility for them to take over as as Benson is scared of and everybody else is is worried about. Um, there's some interesting stuff in the book that doesn't appear in the movie at all about these. AI programs that uh, Gearhart and Richards are working on, um, St. George and Martha, that are interacting with each other. And they, they've programmed these characters, these AIs in this uh, computer system to interact with each other. And they just basically, they're just interacting with each other by giving things back and forth. And they, you know, it's all based on numbers and they're, you know, the the characters these these ai characters are programmed to dislike certain things and to like certain things and to feel neutral about other things and then they put them together and let them interact to see how they interact and they're talking about how this character of martha they've programmed her to be a bit of a bitch and they right. program this other character, George, to be literally a saint. They call him Saint George. Saint George, Because yeah. <laughs> he's so nice no matter what. And, you know, Martha ain't having it. She's like, no, go away. And at one point, it's there's this interesting interaction where George is programmed to not like cats, to not like bananas, and to not like cucumbers. Those are things he does not like. And Martha knows this. And so at one point, she's like, here, have a cat. And the <laughs> Gerhard and Richards are like, whoa, oh, no, she didn't, you know, kind of like that. And he's like, thank you. And they're like, whoa, okay. And then she gives him another cat. And he's like, okay, thank you. And she tries to give him another cat. And he's like, no, I'm good. And she's like, what's the matter? Don't like cats. And he's like, no, I, I have enough cats. And so she, she starts giving him eggplants and bananas and cute, all these things that he's supposed to not like. And he's just like, no, thank you. No, thank you. No, thank you. And they're like trying to figure out like, is it broken? What's wrong with the code? Like he's just being really polite but then he's getting shorter and shorter and shorter and at one point 
She tries to give him a banana and a cucumber at the same time, and he says, I will kill you. <laughs> St. Exactly. George all of a sudden snaps. says, I am going to kill you, Martha. Stop giving me those damn bananas. <laughs> mm-hmm. it, it was nuts, and it was so neat because they're showing the software that's supposedly learning from itself, you know, because that's not, you know, computers are all, you know, they're calculators at this time. You, you input data, it spits something back out. These are two computers software programs, I should say, computers, talking to each other and learning. And then all of a sudden, St. George uh, just goes from quiet, quiet, quiet. He's holding it all in to also just full on rage and I will kill you. And I thought, wow, this is really saying something for what could be the dangers of an artificial intelligence, which you still get today in any movie that's talking about AI stuff. That's the danger type of thing, understanding it and it can understand itself, which brings up another really neat thing in the book where they were talking about how your brain can't understand your own brain. You, you, and they talk about that. I wish I had written down the quote, but I thought that was really neat because you know a brain can't understand a computer, but a computer can understand a brain. So there's this role reversal going on. We understand how a computer works, and we build a computer, and then all of a sudden the worry is, does, will this computer start understanding our brain and us better than we even know ourselves type of thing? Yeah, they, they were mentioning that you know at some point the, the maximum that a human could probably ever fully understand would be like a frog brain. I think is, is as far as they could possibly get. Right. But that in theory, the only thing that could ever understand fully a human brain would be a computer. But in order for that to happen, humans would not fully understand that computer. And that's the, the worry that, you know, basically they would have to build a computer that would then be able to teach itself and go beyond what human understanding is. And then what happens when you have this computer that's so advanced that we don't understand how it works, but it fully understands how we work. Mm-hmm. And that's the that's the danger. And that's, of course, what Benson is worried about the entire time. And that's why I think and, – and that's why I call it a, an assassination attempt because when you think of an assassination, you typically – you, you kind of get that um, – I forget what what's that movie with uh, with Malkovich, I think, where they say, you know, hey, if if they're willing to trade their life for the life of what they're trying to kill, they're probably going to succeed. They're probably going to succeed at it. Yeah. And I think that's what the realization that he's come to in his psychosis is that I need to take out this computer and I'm going to have to sacrifice myself to do it. That's the only reason he's willing to go through this surgery and have, you know, he's afraid of computers taking over, yet he's going in for a surgery where he's literally going to have a computer implanted in his body, Mm -hmm. um, you know, controlling, you know, directly wired to his brain. And he's willing to do this because he doesn't believe that he's going to live past, you know, very long past that surgery. I I fully believe he knew that... Once he was done doing whatever he was going to do to that computer, I don't believe he intended to physically destroy it. You know, as they say in the book, he goes in there and starts changing commands. You know, they're up at the terminal. You know, Gerhard and Richards are looking at it going, the program's changing and we can't control it. We don't know what's going on. He had written some kind of program, essentially a virus. And was uploading this virus yeah. into the – and this was, of course, before – you know, it wasn't termed that way in the book because I don't think they had computer viruses at no. this time. Yeah. Computers <laughs> weren't prevalent enough for people to actually start – you know, anybody writing computer code, they weren't writing malicious code yet. <laughs> right. <laughs> Except for this guy. You know, basically, you know, we have the first instance of a computer virus, um, I think, you know, although we don't ever really find out what his program was intending to do. Because he does end up actually physically destroying the computer. Well, well, he doesn't necessarily, but um, which I guess I guess it would be a good time to start talking about where it where the movie diverges from the book so dramatically. Basically, right. from the moment he leaves the hospital, 
um, in his blonde wig in the movie, yes. which was yes. most definitely a black wig. Specific, like that was one of those things. That's one of those uh, Piedmont moments for me. I'm yep. thinking, why? Why did they make it a blonde wig mm-hmm. when it was a black wig in the book? I mean, why did he make it a black wig in the book? Was there some significance? And why did he change? You know, why was it changed for the movie? But the world may never know. <laughs> no, no, I thought the same thing, and I thought because in the movie the blonde wig, like he looked kind of like the surfer style california 70s he's trying to fit in in clubs whatever you know cool guy and i think that's just it was just that look but i I was looking for that because the other thing i was looking for after i watched the movie when i was reading the book was if angela black's name changed or not it was angela black in both of them because i'm looking for that change and you're right it was the wig it was black and then blonde were the big choices and this is the exact moment when he escapes from that hospital, that everything changes from there on out. But I want to reverse a little bit just mm-hmm. to the beginning. I was amazed at how abrupt this movie changed. It's at the 20-minute mark that they go into the surgery, and they spend a solid 14 minutes in the movie of this brain surgery. And that's all that it was. It it was um, it felt very jarring to me in the movie, and it really threw me off. And this is before he escapes from the hospital. It was neat. It was fascinating. They're talking about, you know, they've got the computers and how it's interacting when he's inserting the probe and he's got to back it back out again. So there were these great visuals in it for the time were probably completely fascinating to see. Uh, But it was jarring to me to all of a sudden, boom, I'm just watching a surgery for 14 minutes where before that I'm jumping between three or four different things going on as he's coming into the hospital, as people are prepping for him, as he's getting ready for surgery, talking to the cops Mm -hmm. that are guarding his door, all of this stuff, and then just surgery. Yeah. And I noticed they didn't change a whole lot – the, the actual surgery itself, they, they kept it fairly true to the book. They, I did notice that they, um, they ramped up the technology a little bit. In the uh, book, they specifically note that they're using normal x-rays but with uh, you know, air contrast in the ventricles of the brain for placement, whereas mm-hmm. in the movie they specify that they're doing these layers of x-rays so that we produce a 3D image, um, yeah. which wasn't mentioned in the book. So they, they ramped up the tech a little bit there. They also added a little bit of drama in the movie that wasn't in the book as far as them going off course at one point. The loud beeping in the up. movie all of a sudden? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, he, he, at one point he's, he's gone a little off course and he has to back up and correct. And in the mm-hmm. book, uh, you know, he's he's on course the entire time. They, they show him, uh, you know, he's, he's able to keep it going. You know, um, one thing I did notice was that they they did ex- they did seem to extend that a little bit. It felt like the surgery scene in the movie felt longer than the surgery scene in the in book. The book. Mm-hmm. But what the the reverse of that is the investigation of his escape. In the movie, it was boom, 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 done. They're like, oh, he's not here. His shoes are gone. His clothes are still here. Oh, wait, look, we found his bathrobe in the orderly closet. He must have walked out dressed as an orderly. Okay, mm-hmm. boom, done. In the book, it was like three and a half chapters of them investigating, wandering around the hospital, figuring out how in the heck he got out of here. They even like described specifically you know, how he made it look like he was still in the bed using the trash bags and where he got each trash bag from to fill with air and put under the blanket. Oh, he got one from under the front, from one from the bathroom, one from this one over here. One. From, they didn't go to all that trouble in the movie. They were just like, yeah, he got out. <laughs> right, and 
now we're at almost the hour mark of the movie, be, and you realize that, okay, we have 35 minutes now to wrap this up. This movie's going to be over soon, where in the book there is just this huge chunk when the doctor split off, like I said, going to the house, going to his work, going to the strip club, all of this stuff that happens that there's so much more detail there. In the book, yeah. we find out in his house, there's nothing uh, mechanical. It's an old-school stove. There's no toaster. There's no machines in his house at all. Yeah. You really get into the psychosis of his character in that where here it is a very quick search for him and then they're just we're just sitting around and waiting and we do learn more in the movie about his psychosis a little bit because now we're watching some interviews that happened during his psychological examinations but they're kind of just sitting there waiting for uh, 604 or whatever the time was yeah. for when this big seizure is going to happen because we find out he's enjoying all of these shocks yeah, yeah. one thing they you know and you kind of get a hint when they're originally right after the surgery, they're testing the electrodes. They've implanted 40 electrodes in his brain, and they have to test each one to see what they do. And they're going through the electrodes one by one, and they, they describe about seven or eight of them, I think, specifically. You know, the first one, he, he feels like he's eating a ham sandwich on rye. On rye, yeah. <laughs> and then there's a couple that do pretty much nothing. There's one that makes him act like a little kid, asking his mom for some milk and cookies. Um, but then they hit the one that he's all, ooh. That felt good. You can do that one again if you want to. <laughs> and it's kind of that hint of, okay, maybe that's too much. Maybe that's maybe that's gone too far. Maybe, you know, you just want to stop the seizure. You're not trying to activate a pleasure center. And that's where, again, in the book, they went into a lot more explanation. They, You know, this whole concept of an ELAD, an electrical addict, people who would seek out this type of surgery without the need for it, just so they could get those pleasurable shocks to the brain whenever they wanted— they they address that. They know that this is a phenomenon that could happen, and yet they still use this, you know, quote-unquote, true P, a pleasure spot on the brain that they found as the as the terminal that they want to use to to stop the seizures. Mm -hmm. um, you know, it, and it gets them all kind of uh, <clears throat> sexy and turned on. He's in the room with Dr. Ross when it happens, and he's all... They, they went way creepier with it in the movie. <laughs> Then in the book, <laughs> with him reaching out and, like, stroking her face, and, like, she's, like, looking at the one-way mirror going, like, guys, what the heck? <laughs> What's, uh, are you going to do the next one? Because it's weird, yeah. <laughs> in the book, it's a little tamer as far as, but I did find one thing amusing. Mm. Um, the version of the audiobook that I was listening to. I'm not sure if it was in the original or not. Um, this is the first time I've listened to quite a few audiobooks, and typically besides the intro when they're saying who's narrating, who the book's by, you know, the, the copyright information, stuff like that, and the outro at the end, there's not usually background music throughout an audiobook. In, in my mm -hmm. experience, most of the ones I've listened to have not had uh, music, unless it's an actual soundtrack. The, you know, the one exception that I can think of is the audio version of uh, Shadows of the Empire has music, but that's because it has a soundtrack. <laughs> that book right, actually yeah. has a soundtrack. Um, this is just, um, I don't know if it was done for copyright reasons or if that was just a style at the time that this was particularly recorded or by that company that recorded it, but there is music in the background and it's almost never themed to what's going on um it's just i think it's like two or three different tracks that just repeat constantly but in that scene in the book the tr the backing track right then has a real 70s porn vibe to it yes it does <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's one of only two times that i really really noticed the music going on 
because it was like, whoa, <laughs> like somebody timed that out. There was another time when there was a real tense moment and the music was like this upbeat, like, bit, 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 bit. I'm like, that's not right. <laughs> no. Yeah. You're like, eh, something's wrong with this recording at that point. But the, the 70s porn music of that was like, okay, then. Yeah. Right go. at that moment, <laughs> it just fit perfectly. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, but yeah, they, they really uh, went into a lot more detail on this whole electrical addict thing. Um, another thing they did a lot of detail on in the book that they barely mentioned in the movie at all was the actual technology of his implant and more specifically mm-hmm. the power source. For the power the source being a nuclear, nuclear waste and the dog yeah. tag he had and everything like that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. He's, he's got this, this dog tag he has to wear that says, if you find me dead or something, don't burn my body, don't poke me, don't incinerate me, don't uh, you know autopsy me until you call this number because I have nuclear material inside of me, basically. Right. Um, because he has this, this implant, this battery that's actually a tiny nuclear generator that's implanted inside of him. And it's a really cool idea of technology it's completely safe as long as it stays in its case mm-hmm. but you know they're worried about you know if he gets radiation shot, if he gets if somebody doesn't know it's there and they try to burn the body if it burns the case away and then releases the nuclear material um if he's autopsied and they don't know where it's at and they cut it you know that type of thing so he's got this dog tag and it's completely not mentioned in the movie they they briefly mention that he's got this power pack that is is powering this thing yeah, they don't and talk about it. it, but in the book, it's <laughs> in his shoulder. They talk about how it's going to where the little computer is in his brain. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's even mentioned the police officers are asking at the end of the book, where is it at exactly? Because they're thinking to themselves, if we have to shoot him, we don't want to shoot that. And uh, But yeah, no, men- very little mention in the movie at all. Yeah. There was one other change uh, between the book and movie that I thought was odd because I think the way the movie handled it fits the story of the book better than the way the book handled it, even though the way the book handled it is more realistic, uh, Mm -hmm. especially coming from somebody who works in a pharmacy and and sees uh, doctors' handwritten notes quite often. The reason that he was, you know, one of the reasons he was, quote-unquote, able to escape was because he wasn't given the tranquilizers that he was supposed to be given immediately after surgery, Mm -hmm. um, after, after the interfacing specifically. In the book, it's mentioned that he's scheduled to receive this Thorazine immediately after his interfacing. And the doctor, you know, McPherson looks at it and he says, uh, the nurses aren't going to know what interfacing is, so I'm going to put a time on this. Start Thorazine after noon. And he signs it. Well, they're trying to figure out how did he escape when he had all this Thorazine on board? Well, oh, he didn't get it because the nurses didn't recognize the signature on the note. They thought it said McPhee instead of McPherson. McPhee is a gynecologist in a different wing. And they said, so they thought it was a note for a different patient. And nobody nobody figured out that he wasn't supposed to get these meds. Right. That happens. That unfortunately does happen. Um, sometimes, you know, nurses can't read notes. Pharmacists can't read notes. You know, I work in order entry for a pharmacy. I get these prescriptions, facts over to me that I know I probably <laughs> couldn't have read the original and then they fax it and it's on a script pad that has that has these void marks on it so when it's faxed or copied the it void marks these... come through even sharper <laughs> yeah. so I'm like I'm trying to read these scribbles through void uh. marks and, and so I can completely understand a nurse not recognizing a doctor's name or signature on this so it makes perfect sense however we also know that this was planned he couldn't plan that in the movie he doesn't take his meds, yeah. which can also happen if they're not being given intravenously. If they're being given in pill form, people can, can cheek a med and spit it out afterwards. And that's what they said. They said, oh, we found all, we found all the Thorazine he was supposed to be taking in the room still. He didn't take it. 
that can happen, yep. if, especially if the nurse if if they aren't known to be not taking their meds. If they go through the motions, like oh yeah, I'm taking it, the nurse isn't mm-hmm. going to sit there and watch them and then check their mouth unless they're known to have that problem. Right. So it's what's one one of those things that, uh, in the sense of him having this whole thing planned out, it makes more sense for him to have chosen not to take the meds in the movie. Yep. But in the book, it, it is a legitimate way that he would not have gotten these meds. Right. So it's it's yeah. kind of interesting to think would that have ruined his whole plan if that hadn't happened if he'd have been on the uh, if he if he'd have been on the Thorazine if it had been administered properly mm-hmm. um, you know and if it was coming through intravenously especially you know he wouldn't have had a choice of whether or not to take it it would have been just there that is true that one little mistake on the doctor's part is something that he had no control over uh, but he needed that to happen because he needed to go back to his house to get the blueprints for the hospital and everything else that he needed to do uh, just to come right back again so um that's interesting i had not thought about that but that was nothing could be plans you're right the movie uh give it a little bit of credit there for that (laughs) yeah there's a a couple of things that it's just weird um that they would choose to make that change where and it seems almost like it fits better into the book um but yeah once he leaves the hospital everything takes a turn in the book we have all this investigation we have all these these doctors going to these different places as you said, in the movie, we have him running around, um, killing a priest <laughs> out of nowhere. I was like, what? The, why? Why is he in a tr- What? Where is this scene coming from? Like, it is right. completely made up out of whole cloth from the book. It Nothing in the book leads to this scene at all. Which is very interesting to me. So Michael Crichton was originally who was supposed to write the screenplay for this book, but he got fired from writing the screenplay because he was deviating too much from his book <laughs> in the screenplay. And I so then Mike Hodges, uh, you know, came on, and the only other big thing he'd done before this was Get Carter. And, uh, and I'm thinking to myself, like, how bad was it that Michael Crichton was deviating when the last half hour of this movie is so completely different from the last half half of the book yeah um so yeah that's fascinating i really wish like and i've looked it, somewhere out there if i could find michael crichton's version of the screenplay it'd be wonderful oh, that would so. be amazing uh, but yeah he was fired for going so far away from the book yet this is what we had for a movie <laughs> <laughs> i i wonder if uh I, I i can't imagine how much more different his version of his own work could have been that they would have been like no no Mm-mm. we don't want this yeah. and then they hired this other guy and they're like yeah we can completely take essentially half of the book because that's the thing. If, if you're reading the book after having watched the movie, you expect this part to go pretty quickly. Mm-hmm. But in reality, you're only about at the halfway point of the book when he leaves the hospital. Yeah, there's no, there's so, there so much more. One of my favorite scenes that is in the book is when uh, he his description of the strip club at the time in the 70s. And in fact, his description of the, the woman <laughs> that was ugly but so well put together and how well i guess she was a machine and the doctor even says how when she takes her top off he could see the scar from the yep. breast implant and the, stuff like that it, you know there's so much more in the book and his that description of the Benson's, clientele um, yeah especially stood out for me especially you know given the time frame that this was written it wasn't uh, considered to be something that you would uh, a stereotype that wasn't challenged at this point, but he noticed all the all the sad-looking men 
and the tough-looking girls Pink with short girls. hair. <laughs> Which was interesting because then the other doctor that's um, – uh, then Ross, which he's going into the apartment complex where Angela Black lives, uh, it specifically called out the drug people and the gays that live there and stuff like that. So there's these stereotypes that were obviously prevalent there in the uh, early 70s when well, this yeah, was when, written. When, she, when yeah. she's driving and – again, in the book, there's an entirely secondary – uh, not storyline, but a whole conversation essentially that Ross is having in her head um, about the automobile and the prevalence mm-hmm. of it in Los Angeles um, as she's driving through the Swish Alps, as it was called back then. Um, yeah, <laughs> so definitely some yeah. definitely some stereotyping going oh on my there. God, yeah. um, it, but you notice even with the stereotyping there, he never really took it in a derogatory manner. No, you know, it was never and like a bad thing. It was just it was just what it was called. It's just what it was called, and that's just that's just to give people who are reading the book a visual. There, everybody who read the book back then was like, "Oh yeah, I know that place." You know, "Oh yeah, I've been to a place like that." Because he was just giving you a better description of a visual. Uh, it was nothing derogatory at all. Even in the talking about the women in the strip club or anything like that, it's just that's just what you saw in a strip club. I would like to know what strip club Michael Crichton went to to get his <laughs> <laughs> his reference from. But yes. You bring up the car thing, and I'm so glad you did. I forgot to make note of this. When they're talking, when he's, Michael Crichton's talking about the car, he's talking about the social aspect of life, and he's talking about how you do not have these cafes on the street because nobody walks. There's no cafes for people to walk to. Your only interaction is when you're at a stoplight and you look at the person next to you, and then you move on with your life. And it was such a true description to what social media is today, the Facebooks and the Twitter of the world today, where you can sit in your house and never, ever leave and that's what what it is. So it was it was very neat because here we are 40 years later and that description of what the car was like could very well be used for what the social media is like today. Yeah. Yeah, he brings up um the whole exactly basically it's 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 how people socialize differently in different times and mm-hmm. uh you know it progresses you should talk about how nobody ever talks about the weather and then she discovered that it's because well the weather never never seems to change so nobody talks about it but right. what, what they do talk about is their cars they want to talk you want to talk <laughs> about traffic you want to talk about automobiles you want to talk about roads oh yeah people will get into that mm-hmm. so there's always some sort of common topic that you can find it's just about knowing your audience and, and knowing what they want to talk about. One thing I did find interesting is that you know, we get so the movie gets so divergent from the book basically when he leaves the hospital. But then there is a point where it kind of comes back because we get to the murder of Angela Black. Yes. Where the movie does handle it quite a bit differently because we see the murder of Angela Black. In the book, this happened essentially off screen. Yeah, we, you, we you're there the with the detectives investigating. Yeah, yeah we, we show we they find the body along with his dog tag, and they call the doctors, and the doctors come to, to see if they can find out what's going on. Um, so in the book, she is killed by him beating her over the head with a lamp, and then stabbing her multiple times with a screwdriver while he's in this seizure state that's brought on by. Uh, this learning curve of the shocks, you know, giving him this pleasure and his brain's like, oh, I like that. How can I get that? Oh, I have a seizure. I get the shock. Okay, let's do this. And you get this whole system set up where he's getting more and more and more and more and more to the point where it's constant. When it's constant, it actually sets off a seizure instead of preventing it. And boom, he goes on a rampage. 
in the movie we actually see it happen. Mm-hmm. Um, and we see it happen a few times. <laughs> whereas yeah, in the yeah, book, like we don't the really... priest and yeah, yeah. Yeah, so I thought it was interesting the little changes they made here too because even though we don't see it in the book, it's after the fact. We know that it was a lamp and a screwdriver. Mm-hmm. Whereas in the in the movie, they make it very clear that it's a snow globe, I think. Some sort of little trinket. Uh, you know, I think it was either a snow globe or like a paperweight or something like that that he hits right. her with. And then it's a pair of scissors that she had been using to, to clip her nails. Um, in both of them, they allude to the machine, the computer in him, where the stabbing motion continues happening going forward. Like it, he's just a machine, you know, in a... Uh, in a factory, just constantly yeah, stabbing, just, even past the arm into the bed, and they allude to that in both the of water them. Waterbed in the movie, <laughs> yeah, waterbed in the movie, which goes splashing. So, this point in the movie, Eric, I am going to see if I can save the movie and have you look at it in a different way. At this point in the movie. She starts bleeding, and we have a shot of the white, pristine tile and the blood running through the cracks of it. And I thought to myself, this movie is so full of symbolism, this feels like a Stanley Kubrick movie. And then I realized that A Clockwork Orange came out just a couple of years before this. And if you look back at this whole movie, especially the end of it, that's probably why the production company said, yeah, let's do this, because it had such symbolism, very much so like a Kubrick movie. And then in looking at IMDb, I found out that this movie was one of Stanley Kubrick's favorite movies. <laughs> and of course it was, because it fucking looks like one of his, because there's so it's much. An homage. Even when, of course he it's liked an homage it. <laughs> to him. So of course he likes it. But that's what this was, and I wish – so I rewatched again the last 15 minutes of this movie because that's where there's so much symbolism, and I couldn't tell you exactly what they were trying to say. But at the end, he's running through a uh, cemetery during a funeral procession, and he's running past all these gravestones, and he's laughing because he's getting that trigger, this happy, funny response. And he stands there, and he looks where they're about to bury the people, and he looks down. He's not – he didn't fall accidentally into this grave that was dug. He stepped into it. He, like, he knew what he was doing, but there's all this semblance. Um, oh, when he was running, he gets hit by a sprinkler, and they show you a close-up of the sprinkler shooting and then it hitting him in the face, which felt kind of uh, – like students, like you're a film student kind of a shot. Like that's the thing you do to get into the film festival and everything. (laughs) But he was, there was all this symbolism that they were trying to point out. And that's what I feel like this movie was full of. Even the music itself in the movie, which was this beautiful piano, it's throughout the entire movie that it comes back. And it's the same soundtrack. And so Mm -hmm. that's what this thing is full of. It's funny Making that you, you mentioned. Think, oh, yeah, go ahead. Go ahead. Sorry. No, no. I said go ahead. Yeah. <laughs> uh, it's funny that you mentioned the Kubrick thing because there was one thing that I had on my notes was uh, before the before we get to the the priest when he's. Or actually, I'm sorry. It's uh, no. I guess it is before we get to the priest. Um, actually, I can't remember which order it went now. But when he goes to Doctor Ross's house mm-hmm. and he's oh yeah, after she, to talk when to she's her, showering and everything and going in there. The, yes, she's in yes, the shower. Yep. We get a little bit of. Uh, a psycho vibe there but then right when she when he starts having the seizure and she runs away from him and she goes into the bathroom locks the door and he comes 
starts bursting through the door. I was looking at him like, hey, we got ourselves a little shining moment here. Uh, yeah. <laughs> which, and then which I'm realizing then this... I guess you would have to say Stanley Kubrick used that because The Shining was in 1980. So, yes. yeah. <laughs> so I'm like, oh, hey, wait a minute. Maybe there was a little bit of uh, back and forth there. Maybe maybe when he uh, was writing that, he was thinking maybe this was in the back of it. Maybe he wasn't, like, copying it. I don't want to say that. But, uh, you know, maybe it was in the back of his mind. He was thinking about this and, you know, somebody bursting through the door and, you know, that arm coming through the crack and everything. And that was his homage to one of his favorite movies, which happened to be a movie that had a lot of symbolism, just like his movie, so. <laughs> Clockwork Orange did. So, <laughs> I like this circle that we just found right here. This is very good. There it is. There it is. <laughs> there it is. We've tied in these three different movies. Uh, but so that so now when I watch, so I rewatched the movie a second time, obviously, after reading the book and everything. And then all of a sudden I thought, OK, this is just a lot of symbolism about the human plight. And then it got even more interesting, and I'm going to read this directly from the book. I've got it pulled up here. Dr. Ross is talking about how the mechanical clock is ticking, and the, she's never noticed it before, but now the sound has disturbed her, and she fixes on it. And then she starts thinking about all the different psychological derangements that are there, you know, like deja vu, depersonalization. And this is the exact quote from the book. There was no sharp line between health and disease, sanity and insanity. It was a spectrum, and everybody fitted somewhere on the spectrum. Wherever you were on that spectrum, other people looked strange to you. And that was a huge symbolism thing uh, for me. And I thought, you know, this is kind of what maybe the undertone of the book was. And maybe this is what Michael Crichton was trying to say is, you know, everybody's different. And if you, you nobody can understand Benson's point of view because nobody was in his shoes. Nobody understood the technology and the computers and what was happening. Same goes in the movie. Nobody understood what Benson was going through. I mean, this is a guy that was having blackouts and then waking up and had blood on his hands. And he was beating people up, you know, and he was this kind of mild mannered computer guy. So even if in the movie it wasn't the surgery wasn't for him to then destroy the computers, it was for maybe for him to get better. And then it turns out to be worse because his brain likes these feelings. And then just like in the book, you have the two software, St. George and going back and forth. Now his brain and this computer are learning from each other and they're becoming something even more evil. And it had the opposite effect. And he decides that the best thing he can do is just drop himself into this tomb into this uh, burial plot. Yeah, he ends up uh, in the film trapping himself essentially in this grave um, that's been uh, dug previously for what looked like I, based on the the, the photos that were, you know, you know, how they have the photo in the wreath type of thing and the size of the, the coffin, it looks like it was for a child. Um, yeah. I'm not quite sure. They didn't really, they didn't go into any backstory about who this kid was or, you know, who this funeral was for. But I thought it was an interesting choice that without any addition to the story, they happened to choose a child's funeral for that. Mm -hmm. And I don't know if that was some more symbolism, perhaps, uh, you know, about his regression to a childlike state um, or, or what that was. Um, but yeah, and then we have the, what I thought was a weird ending, especially considering I felt the book's ending was so, so, so much better. Um, in the, in the movie, he traps himself in this grave, the cops are surrounding him, Dr. Ross is trying to get to him because she's, she's still, to this moment, convinced that if she can just talk to him, she might be able to get him to come down and get him to come back to the hospital and they can fix the computer and they can still fix him. She still thinks that they can fix him. Just like in the book, she still is looking yeah, right for... Right up until yes, that last right moment. Right up until that last second. Um, however, in the movie, then they have this police helicopter comes up, police sniper, boom, boom, 
They don't care whether or not they hit the nuclear power pack because it hasn't been mentioned. And right, none of that at all. Yeah, <laughs> and away they go. Um, and that's that's it. That's the end. You know, that's like okay. Well, he's dead, and he's already in a grave. <laughs> Um, and you know Ross is upset, and and then we're done. And then we get the the one other thing that they added in the movie that was not in the book in any way, shape, or form: the weird eyes on the other side of the door. I'm so glad you brought that up, <laughs> what because was that's that? how the movie closes. Well, that we do have the helicopter back again at the end credits, and it's like wrapping up because the beginning of this movie is the helicopter taking off. Yes. At the end of the movie, during the credits, it's the helicopter landing. Mm-hmm. Uh, so there's more symbolism, but the eye, and it's like these two doctors talking and the eye is in it three or four times but the end the eye thing just opens up and one voice says you're next and the other one says something like stop doing that or whatever and then it shuts again yeah, and it's, it's like your eye looking through a peephole at a door into you into your soul again it's a symbolism i wish i freaking knew what hodges was trying to symbolize <laughs> with all this stuff i know it's it's so weird because it's never explained it's just there well, you know mm-hmm. you see this it's as if you're in a cell and all that opens up is this tiny little slot in the door, and you see an eye, and you hear them talking. And it's it's always, you know, these other two voices talking to each other until the very end when it's like directly, you're next. And then you're next. Like, hey. yep. And you're like, what? <laughs> like, wait a minute. Because, what? <laughs> what? Yeah. In the beginning, they're talking about Hodges, and because he says, oh, who's this guy? Or no, Benson, I'm sorry. Oh, who's this guy? And they're talking kind of about like why he's there. So you're thinking, oh, okay, these are like nurses checking in on him or something. Thing, but there's not a peephole type thing like that in his room. It's not like he's yeah, he in never... jail. He's in a regular doctor. So I don't get it. But yeah, that's how we end it. And then we got credits and then we get to see the helicopter now land, which I think was the same police helicopter that shot him. That took off in the beginning. They landed at the end. So, yeah, I, I thought that like it was simpler. the same helicopter. Um, yeah. You know, because, you know, hey, circle it right, right back around. So it was an interesting so, end to the movie, but I, I did feel that the book's ending was more appropriate um, for the story, you know, specifically Benson does manage to get back to the hospital with these blueprints. He gets down into the basement. He's there at the computer. He's changing the programming. Um, he has a gun, but there's there's some fighting. He gets hurt and he gets knocked over. The gun ends up in Ross's hand. And now she's like, I can do it. I can fix him. He, he has I to stop. I him. have a gun. He has I'll to listen to me now. Um, and this is where I really get that feeling where this is the ending he knew was coming he never intended to survive this whole thing. Right. And so that's why he's like, he's looking at her going, nope, you're going to have to shoot me. I'm going to make you shoot me. And he basically, you know, continues to come at her, even though she's like, I, I, I will shoot you. And she tries and uh, misses. And, but then, you know, the second time he's, he's still coming at her and she has to defend herself. And so she ends up being the one who kills him. Kills him. And while I feel really bad for her in that having to happen to her, I feel like that was a better conclusion to the story than the way the the movie handled it with a cop doing mm-hmm. it. Um, it. It seemed to, to complete the story more. Um, it's definitely going to give her something to go talk to her shrink about, that's for sure. Because now she became the tragic hero. Because she still saved the day. She stopped this bad guy, but this was not at all what she wanted to do. So you're right. Now she's going to be back on that couch uh, talking to a psychologist, so to a shrink. This book, though, still to me ended abruptly. I was yes. waiting for the epilogue. Mm-hmm. The, the cop comes in, takes her away, and the chapter's over. Uh, yeah, like like literally the paragraph before is about how his the white uh, coat, which he's still wearing the same white lab coat or whatever, is just pooled in this deep red crimson blood. 
and then the cop comes and takes the gun from her and walks her out, and that's the end. Yeah, there's a, there's some brief mention of um, them taking the body away in a special container to make sure that if that power pack had been open, you know, and then somebody comes through with the Geiger counter and is, is doing that, but then boom, done. Yeah, then abrupt. <clears throat> so I, I, I did feel a little jarred by the ending because I was, I was wanting something more, and I think it's because of what you mentioned, like, she is this tragic hero now, and I just want to see a little bit more, or like, what did the other doctors, that these male doctors she's been working with this whole time during this discovery and the search and rescue thing, what did they have to say? But you just, you just never know. It was, I, I don't know, Eric, if I liked this book or not. <laughs> I've read this and I've listened to this book, and I don't know if I like it. I will tell you, I guess, for everybody listening, if you are a fan of Stanley Kubrick, uh, his style, like a Clockwork Orange type of style, though not near as violent or anything like that, but uh, watch this movie and tell me what you think the symbolism is. You know, as far as the book goes, it's a good book, but it may get onto my list of maybe one of my worst uh, Michael Crichton books. I just, I just um, could not get myself as attached to it as I really wanted to. I kind of had to I had to look a little bit more. I love his description of the things in the 70s, the strip club, the apartments, California, the vehicles, his description of what insanity is. Um, but I just, there was, I did not fall in love with any of the one characters in the this book well the the two that i did were the wizards that are mentioned <laughs> very briefly you know the programmer guys yeah the, the ones who didn't didn't even rate the movie evidently no nope. um nope, exactly but uh yeah i i kind of agree i'm definitely not my favorite i don't know that i i still think i like this one a bit better than a case of need but okay. it's definitely not going to be in my top list either. Um, right. Crichton himself has gone on record as saying that this was his least favorite of his own work. Oh, thank God. So then. Okay, you're good. not we in agree. bad company. <laughs> <laughs> that makes me feel better. I can sleep better at night now. <laughs> Oh man! Well, and and to, to your point, yeah, it's not going to be probably the worst. Worst, I do think. I actually enjoyed the movie uh, for a case of need, uh, the carry treatment better than I think I enjoyed the book. So you're right. This may be uh, not at the worst, but I'm glad that uh, I didn't know that about Crichton that this was his least favorite. So that's good to know. <laughs> yeah, if I if I'm reading this correctly, it was something said in an interview with Oprah of all people in '97. Uh, it was uh, when he said that out of his own works, the uh, Terminal Man was one of his least favorite. Oh, that's uh, that is good to know then. All right. Well, uh, Eric, I don't know about you, but I don't know if there's anything else that I can touch on. Uh, I, I even got to be able to describe uh, boobs in this episode, so this was a good episode for me all around. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, yeah, no, I feel I, I definitely think I want to do the same style as far as um, how I consumed the the stories because it really gave me better insight as to the specific differences and how I felt about them by uh, by by watching the movie and listening to the book in the same day. I still right. think I will. I, I think I'll do it again like I did this time, reading the book, then watching the movie, and then listening to the book. Yeah, if I can. no, it's um, a good way to get notes. I did enjoy this was actually my very first audio book I have ever listened to. So it was kind of nice to be able to do that just while you're driving, while you're at work type of thing. I mm -hmm. think it, the audio book was a little over six hours long or something, but um, it was a good way to consume. So I'm going to start getting into that, too, myself. Yeah, it's definitely a, a good way to listen to, 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 to get books in. I used to do it quite a bit uh, when I, I had a side job on the weekends where I was literally just standing and didn't didn't have to interact with anybody ever in any way i was just standing there and so i got i listened to quite a few books that way 
Um, mm. But even now, in the job I have now, it's fairly monotonous data entry, and I don't actually have to interact with anybody directly, so I can oh. easily get most of a book listened to in, in a single shift. There you go. <laughs> so, All right. Well, thank you very much again for listening, everybody. And as always, you can find us everywhere as Crichton Cast, whether that be Facebook or Twitter or just the website. Uh, you can also mm-hmm. call us at 802-JURASSIC and leave a voicemail on anything. If you do watch this movie and you want to tell us what you think the symbolism is, please email, tweet, message us on Facebook, anything, and let us know. Yeah. Yeah. Give us a follow on the Twitters at CrichtonCast. Uh, we try to keep that up to date. Uh, the more followers we get, the more incentive we will have to do so. <laughs> That's right. That's um, right. <laughs> you can also follow us directly on Twitter as well. I'm at Eric J. Dewey. I am at Stephen Mastin. So, uh, yeah, give us a follow, and uh, that way you'll, you'll get the full story all the time. But, yeah, That's we definitely right. want to hear from you. Let us know what you felt about the uh, Terminal Man, both the book and the movie. I'd, I'd love to hear your thoughts. Thank you very much for listening.